Tennessee Williams once famously said, plays are not written, they're rewritten. More and more that appears to be true for classic musicals as well. A new term has cropped up, revisals. Take the recent revisal, on a clear day you can see forever. It was updated, rewritten to the point of a gender change, and other songs by Lerner and Lane were interpolated. The revival of the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess ignited something of a firestorm with its changes. What is allowed by the estates, which control these works? How do directors approach a work to make it fresh and reinvented? I'm Patrick Pacheco of New York One and the LA Times for the American Theatre Wing, and our guests today are uniquely qualified to answer these questions. I'm delighted to welcome them to Working in the Theatre. Rob Ashford is a director and Tony Award-winning choreographer. His current project on Broadway is Evita, which he choreographed, and he both directed and choreographed How to Succeed in Business and Promises Promises. He's just returned from London where he directed the new musical Finding Neverland, and he is also directing the revival of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof this season. Ted Chapin is the president and executive director of Rodgers and Hammerstein, who has been at the helm of more than 20 award-winning Broadway and London revivals. He is the past chairman of the board of trustees for the American Theatre Wing, and was the driving force behind the recording of the musical Allegro. Ted is also the author of a book about the birth of the 1971 Sondheim musical Follies, on which he worked as a production assistant. And director Scott Ellis is currently represented by the revival of The Mystery of Edwin Drood. His other many credits include Harvey, Curtains, The Little Dog Laughed, Company, Steel Pier, and She Loves Me. He is also the associate artistic director of the Roundabout Theater. Welcome all. Thank, Thank you. you. Be here. Let's start with the term, revisals. When did you first hear it, and why do you suppose it came about? Ted? Well, you posed that question in the green room, and I <laughs> thought to myself, okay, what's the first musical that I know of that could be called a revisal, e even if it wasn't called that specifically? First one I could think of was actually Annie Get Your Gun in 1967. Wow. Because Richard Rodgers at Lincoln Center Theater in the music theater of Lincoln Center established for the campus of Lincoln Center to do musicals. It didn't last long, unfortunately. But he gathered, Eth even Ethel Merman was in it, and Irving Berlin wrote a couple of new songs, and Dorothy Fields adapted the book. Um, and I, th I don't know what inspired their feeling that they, they needed to, to have at that show, but th that's the earliest one I can think of that arguably was not performed in the original text and, so and score. Wasn't it more traditional to just, when you revived a show, to do the original staging, the original choreography, the original design and everything, right? That was and so what it was, right? Yeah. And so many of them went out on the tour on tours and there would be a, an, around the road for so many years that they would then pop back into town. Right, exactly. So the authenticity was keyed then, right? To see what the original was. Scott, do you recall when you first heard it? Well, we. Robert and I were talking, <laughs> talking, and we, mm -hmm. I think he, you're right. We, we think that the first time we heard it was from Kathleen Kathleen Marshall. Marshall yeah. yeah, that's that's what I, I remember. I remember her. Uh, I think when we were doing uh, Kiss Me Kate, actually, that's uh, I, that's what I recall. I just remember her saying that it's not uh, it's not about just reviving the show. It's about revising the show, um, and it made such sense, you know. Yeah. A, a show that you all three worked on, a revival of a show that you all three worked on was the, the 2002 revival of The Boys from Syracuse. Uh, Nikki Silver came in and rewrote the original book. Uh, Ted, I, I think you 
did this idea start with you? How did it come about? And you had why to go. hire Nikki Silver? You had to start there, <laughs> did you? I did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because Scott directed it and you created right. it. I did, yeah, that's right. Um, it started as many revivals or revisals have started in the last 25 years at, with encores, which did the voice from Syracuse, and people thought it would be, it would be interesting. However, nobody wanted to do the original book. And I think it may have been Scott's idea. No, I mean, was it your idea or was it Todd's idea? I think it was both of us talking and saying, well, if this is a, a show that might be re-looked at in the book, people think book might be some problems, why don't we go in and, mm -hmm. and really try something? Yeah. And the original book was by George Abbott. It was. Right. First, first musical based on Shakespeare play. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, what I remember, and these guys can, can, can tell their own war stories, mm -hmm. the reading of it in that roundabout rehearsal room was one of the funniest things I've ever experienced in my life. And I just thought, this is going to be so cool. Because it, it had a very different sensibility, um, you know, kind of hip humor, as Nikki Silver is wont to do. And I mm -hmm. thought, this is, this is going to be great. And it just didn't work out that way. As now, who mm -hmm. chose Nikki Silver, and and does do you does he have to run his changes by the Rogers and Hammerstein an organization that controls the rights to this Rogers and Hart musical? I think that reading was what what sort of saying here yeah. here's the idea. This is what we're we're thinking of doing. Yes. What do you think? Right. I imagine if the reading didn't go well, the estate would right. have probably said mm -hmm. this is going on the wrong path. But it's also, yeah, yeah. it's also, yeah. I mean, part of the magic from my standpoint is if the idea of Nikki Silver and the Boys from Syracuse is a good one to say, take it the next step, mm -hmm. you know, free, fly, you know, and then we'll all get together and see if, you, if you've come up with something. Because to say no, that's a bad idea. You got to have pretty good reason to say no at the very beginning. I get in trouble sometimes mm -hmm. by saying yes too much, but it's much more interesting. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I, was, I also think when you're looking at shows like this and with that or anything, I was, and you could speak more about it from the estate, but I always find it like, well, why not go try? You always can go back to what yeah, you have, but right. why not, why I, not go? I think what happened, well, I think one of the things was these songs were so famous and beloved that what happened with the new take on them and who was delivering them and how they were delivered, I think that that freaked people out a bit. Because yeah. they, they, you know, they were all willing for a new book if they didn't care for the old one, but they still wanted the songs intact like in the encores. So I think that when, you, when Nikki Reed did the show and all of us just trying to figure out, well, in this version, who would sing that? In this version, who would sing that? And how will it be arranged? What will the dance arrangement be? What will the orchestrations be? All of that stuff was new. So I think then, I don't want to say the purists even, I just think the audiences wanted those traditional yeah. songs to be delivered traditionally. And I think with the new take on the book and that, it felt a bit at odds somehow and it yeah. didn't... Uh, it's interesting not, not to talk immediately about another revival, but you could also go back to uh, On a Clear Day also most recently, which I respect and think that's, why not? Why not go and try something new? But it's just, it's such a difficult balance, balance when you're yeah. doing that. It is so difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just finding the balance and having something work in a rehearsal room, which many of us have been in on many projects, and then 
you go on stage and you go, uh-oh, wait a minute, it yeah. didn't, it's not the same. And by the way, it could be just the opposite, things not so good in, in a reading, and then you keep working it on a stage, it looks great. So I think it's just a very fine balance. Going back, would you look at it and go, well, what would you do differently? Of course, you can always go back. But I think what we did was embracing Nikki Silver and, and a new way of, of, of doing it. And, and I think you have to go full out. And also since it had just played at Encore. Yes, yeah. To a great success. Yes. And it was beautifully rendered and beautifully done. It, there would be no point for us to just do that again right. at the American Airlines. Right. You know, the idea was to just kind of, you know, reinvent it or revise it a bit, you know. Try something new with it. How would you, as directors, balance that, just what you brought up, whether it's purists or audience, audience expectations when you're coming to a revival, whether it's Mystery of the Edwin Drood or Evita or How to Succeed, audience expectations versus <clears throat> your own personal vision of a show. It's kind of nutty. I have to say, <laughs> when, when I was going to do Promises, Promises, and I'm not even kidding you, most people asked, the question that most people asked was, are you going to do the figure eight in Turkey Lurkey? <laughs> are you going to do the figure eight in Turkey Lurkey? Yeah. Literally going like, are you yeah. serious? Yeah. But yes, they were 100% serious. Everyone knew Turkey Lurkey from the, to you know, you can YouTube the Tony Award dance, it's Donna McKechnie, it's Biork Lee, it's Margot Sappington, I think, these three ladies doing the turkey lurkey, and then all the guys and gals of the chorus do this figure eight, like, not a complicated step, and, and a fun I, fun pattern. And this but is it, Michael Bennett's choreography. Yeah, Michael Bennett's choreography. It was a fun, it was a great number, but I, I had no idea of the weight of the figure eight. <laughs> I mean, seriously, but, it, but, it, but it's, it's kind of, right. so there, you never know yeah. either what what people might fixate on, like what something that was signature to them that, you know, you don't want to disregard, but you also don't want to be a slave to it either. Did that you intimidate know? you? It, it surprised me. And I didn't do a figure eight. <laughs> so I know you, 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 you mentioned that. Opening night, you're like, where was the figure eight? I, first thing I said to you was, I don't see a figure eight. eight. I'm confused. Yes. <laughs> but I, yeah, I think I, I think he's exactly right. I mean, I'm I'm sort of in the middle of it now with Drood, and uh, you know, it's 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 sort of well, will she take that last note that Betty Buckley did in the revival? I mean, in the original production, and you think, really, that that's it? That's what you remember? If that's, yeah, that's that right. sort of... Will she go, the will wall, she go the, the or the wall? wall. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, <laughs> just, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. People who, who mm -hmm. know it and who have experienced and love it have uh, you know, feelings on it. I always go just the opposite, or try to go the opposite and go, my stepmother, who lives down in Florida, didn't see you know, the, probably the original Promise Promise, or certainly didn't see The Mystery of Edwin Drood, so can't we just look at it that way and, and, and have people come into it a, a generation that has never seen the show and uh, so that's the balance mm -hmm. you know you don't want to do well this is what they did back then and we're you know you've got to find how helpful is Rupert Holmes in this well I think anybody who's fortunate enough to do a revival the, the with, writer obviously. with the writer on it yeah you're, that's you're helpful. way ahead of the game you yep. know or I suppose it could be 
trouble too, but <laughs> I think you're you're way ahead of the game because you have them in the room with you mm -hmm. and they can you can talk about it. And there have been changes in Mystery of Edwin Drew. There are things that have not been seen in the States that were done in London. So in that way we have we're doing new things and just last night we made changes and cuts and rearranged stuff. So that's a that's ble a blessing to have a, a, a writer there. Ted, your brief is different because you're protecting the brand, right. quote unquote. Sorry for using that. I know it's an overused it's okay. term, <laughs> but and obviously they're dead. Um, there are living heirs to to it. How right. do you weave your way through this balancing act? Well, as I'm listening to Scott and Rob, I, I I think of an experience that we had because in the days in the Rogers and Hammerstein days, not only did they have iconic choreography, for example, Agnes DeMille and then Jerome Robbins and The King and I. And they were, they were tough enough businessmen that they actually owned the choreography. Mm. I think everybody after that paid for that because everybody said, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. That, that the, but they were the authors and they were the producers mm -hmm. by that point. Um, when the National Theater asked about doing Carousel years ago because they wanted to do musicals, the second thing they said after asking for the rights was, we don't want to use Agnes DeMille. And if you make us use Agnes DeMille, we won't do it. And so that was a dilemma. Dorothy Rogers was still alive, and, and she was like, but, but it's good. It works. It's Agnes DeMille. I said, well, we can say no, and we won't see Carousel. And the irony is <clears throat> we said yes, because I think part of my job is to keep these shows alive, and one of the ways to keep them alive is to be open to new thoughts and new ways of doing them. And ironically, they hired Kenneth McMillan, who was a fine ballet choreographer, who did the ballet in the second act, then died, unfortunately, so the rest of it he didn't get to do. Um, and it won the Tony when it came here, and ironically, it was more of a throwback to a different kind of ballet that, that Agnes DeMille was actually working against. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but, that's very true. That's very true. But that's because, true. People, because it was well done and people loved it and it got the essence of a kind of passionate dance, people loved it. So again, should I have said, should I force the issue, you must do Agnes DeMille? I didn't think it was the right decision. You know, they came up with something that was interesting. Is Mary Rogers more open than, say, Dorothy Rogers was? Okay. In experimentation? Well, yes and no. I mean, Mary Rogers is a wonderful human being on, on, on all levels. She, has, she can tell you more than you want to know about her father. However, she has an unbelievable connection to her father's work. It is true, I've told this story before, but on the first preview of the Oklahoma that Trevor Nunn directed and Susan Stroman choreographed at the National, it was in Hugh Jackman, the first job he got he had out of, after Austra out of Australia. It was a very exciting night. And they got to the rousing title song, and the, and, and the wind comes right behind the rain. And she leaned to me and she said, they're singing a D flat. It's a D natural. <laughs> and and I, it, I mean, that's, that's, that's an unbelievable resource. And the fact is, she was right. And the musical director said, it was tech rehearsal. We got sloppy. She's absolutely right. We'll, we'll, we'll fix it. Mm -hmm. So if, as far as I'm concerned, if I can use what you know, it, the lineage of the heirs, if they have a connection to the stuff, that, you know, they're great. Because also, they have really good instincts about whether a production is a good production or a bad production, whether we should do it. Scott, as Associate Artistic Director of The Roundabout, have you been in a situation where you've wanted to revive a musical, but the controlling estates have not allowed you to make the changes? Yes. Before Harvey, when we were like, we, we needed to find something in that, that spot, I had su suggested, well, maybe let's relook at uh, Ain't Misbehaving and take Studio 54 and create a Harlem nightclub 
and really go all out with it and really do a new look at it, young cast, you know, all that. Which we were thought, okay, great. This is, you know. Mm -hmm. So meeting with the, the writers, and, and stuff, it, was, it, it became clear in the conversation that, it, yes, we absolutely, you could do it if you basically stuck with what, the same choreography, the same idea. And so all of a sudden you're like, well, why, why would I want to do it? And I think going back to directors, it's a, it's a challenge because why do, if we're going to do it, we want to do it to for, you know, put our, an, yeah. our stamp on it or to, to have a yeah. chance to look at it in a different way. Yeah. So, or yeah. also whatever social issues of a certain time are different now. When we did mm -hmm. Promises and in How to Succeed, the whole sexist thing was such an issue. Do you know what I mean? So when we did Promises, we, we added a couple of Backrack David songs for the character of Fran that Kristen Chenoweth played because we felt that her character had just been kind of left out to dry. Mm. She was a victim, period. And, and so we wanted to give her a, a moment of, of, of joy in the show. So that's why we put in, uh, I'll say a little prayer for you. So give her a moment of, of, of happiness and let, let the audience realize that you know, that, that she was involved in this, this affair, that she got some positive out of it as well as all the negative, just to try to balance that out a bit. The same with the... Um, um, house is not a home? Yeah, house is not a home. Because you don't, you don't hear Fran or, or see Fran for a long, long time in that, in that musical. And then the next time you see her, she's taking a handful of pills. So you, just, you need to check in with her along the way and just kind of chart that journey. And, and that was even, the, 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 the writers were the same writers, but they, were, um, they weren't skeptical. Neil said they were open to it, but, but we, we needed to prove it to them. So we, we, we had to, uh, we staged the songs, we put it in. Um, they came, uh, Neil, We're about Neil Simon, Neil Simon Bert Backrack and Hal, Hal David. David. They came to the rehearsal studio, they watched it, they saw it before they uh, okayed it to, uh, to, to even try it on stage um, because they wanted to make sure it made sense, you know. The, the whole idea of interpolating numbers and how many, what's the tipping point? Do you have any idea, Ted, Scott? What's the tipping point in terms of how many numbers you can actually interpolate into a show before it's not the show? Well, it's interesting, hearing Rob talk about promises, um, one of the things I think, and I can understand why the Promises authors were open to that and the Ispahaven authors were not. Um, a lot of it has to do with what the, what the fairly recent history of the show is. Promises is not done a lot. Mm -hmm. People know the score. It was a very particular pop sound, which was very exciting for Broadway. Um, but it hasn't been done, I, I, don't, I would guess no. it's not done a lot in the no. regionals and no. the summer stocks and mm -hmm. the St. Louis yeah. Munis and places. Or London like or anywhere. Yeah. yeah, so that those authors hearing the idea that their show could be done again would probably be more open to listening to what has changed in the society to, to, to adjust this. Whereas Amos Behaven was, a, was kind of a, a, I mean, a, a happenstance. I mean, Manhattan Theater Club up on the Upper East Side and, you know, somebody said, what about... Fats Waller, and they kind of got together, and it kind of had this magical, you know, ethereal thing. And the, the original cast was was um, unbelievable. And I, I haven't seen a lot of other productions of it, but I I could guess, I could sense why people would say, I, I don't think we should mess with that. Whereas in Promises, yeah, I totally disagree. Well, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it's like, well, you're you're talking about a, an original cast, a great cast, a great production, absolutely. But 
what, how many years ago is that? No, I know that, yeah. but I'm just saying. And that also that. material geared for those performers. For those performers. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so yeah, Mel Carter had. Of course, had, it all. You know, and I'm not, that was an incredible production. I still remember yeah. it, you know, but to not go, to go back, I mean, you can't use those people. You can't. Right. You can't do that. So why not embrace? And by the way, this is nothing against the, the authors. They're all alive and they, ha whatever, that's, I totally get it. But I do feel like there has to be times when you go, okay, let that go. And now let's, let's oh, yeah. take a, take mm -hmm. a. No, and, and the on, on a clear day that was last season. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, there's a show that I don't think is, I mean, it was, first of all, it was revised as soon as it closed on Broadway. There were there were as a tour of it that or a summer stock thing. I know that they started mm -hmm. to they started to mess about with that show. Then they did the movie and put a couple of songs that had been cut in. So it, right away, it wasn't a huge hit, mm -hmm. and it it started to get messed around with right away. So the bold, I mean, that was a bold revisal last year, changing Very. genders, changing the, the love interests. Um, absolutely fascinating, and I can I can understand the. I can understand the various estates going along with that, um, you know, and and ultimately it didn't work out, and who knows why. And that really is a that was a huge shame. Yeah. I mean, I I, yeah. I can't remember a show that, yeah. you know, has been looked at that and changed that drastically. Well, yeah. and, and and kept the title. I mean, uh, yes. I was in Crazy for You. Yeah. Uh huh. So that's that's a show that uh -huh. that changed enough to become a new show, right? <laughs> Girl Crazy to Crazy for You. Uh, so many changes and so many alterations and that it became its own show. Is, um, it, is it sort of a rule that if it, generally a revisal is called for if the original piece doesn't work or is outdated? Can we yeah. kind of say that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I also think of Flower Drum Song because... Uh, well, I, you, that's what yeah. I was just going to bring I mean, up, was it was a major overhaul that you commissioned David Henry. Well, Paul it was to. actually, again, all of these, they all start differently. Uh -huh. And in, in that instance, the, uh, when the King and I production was done in 96, the director of that um, met David Henry Wong and they got into a conversation and David sort of said that, that you know, every Asian American just poo-poo's flower drum song as being hopelessly outdated, hopelessly impossible, and secretly they all loved it. And so he said, Let, you know, what, what about taking a look at it Mm -hmm. um, and it, 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 because flower, again, because flower drum songs, frankly, not done that much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that made the idea of taking a fairly radical look-see at it mm -hmm. kind of fascinating. But we talked about changing the title. Yeah. Hmm. We talked about not calling it flower drum song. What were some yeah. of the alternate? Well, Golden, uh, Golden Gate, which is, which is, which has been used sort of because it, it still was in the time period in San Francisco, the, the <coughs> Asian Chinese American community, which was all from the original. It just was seen from a different viewpoint with a very different story and done in a very different way. And yeah. anyway. Uh, Rob, uh, there are certain books that are looked at as the gold standard to some extent, mm -hmm. Gypsy certainly, sure. uh, Little Night Music, Sweeney Todd, you know, Hugh Wheeler. Um, oh How to Succeed is often looked mm -hmm. at as a quite strong book. When you came yeah, to revive so. How to Succeed, what were the discussions about updating the book, changing the book? Um, and we're talking about an A, uh, there were three writers on it, right? Abe Burroughs being one of them, I believe, mm -hmm. and then two others that are in here somewhere. But yeah, Mead. Yeah, right. Shepard Mead, yeah. I, it wasn't, it felt like it's a really sound book and score. So it wasn't like we went in going like, boy, we really need to, what are we going to do? How are we going to figure this out? What the challenge with that was, was um, by having Daniel Radcliffe play. Take your pump in. Yeah. But having him play, being so much younger, it just kind of switched the dynamic of that 
that, of that role. Instead of it being someone who was kind of in the middle, or not in the middle, I don't mean middle age, but so say someone in their early 30s or 30 that's trying to figure out a way to skip some steps, it became about youth picking up a book and saying, I can do this, whatever it takes. It's about someone like leaping off a building and trying to figure out how they're going to land on the way down. And, and youth being the thing that pushed that through rather than going, wait a minute, okay, I, can, I can work the system. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, so it, in you that... You found a great um, second lead because, you know, mm-hmm. I did see the original with, with uh, Rudy Valley, who was just a, another a different creature from another world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the revivals I've seen have, haven't really been able to find somebody who <laughs> makes <laughs> that his own. Mm-hmm. And John Larroquette and, yeah. and Daniel together were like, I, I can <laughs> believe this relationship yeah. completely. Yeah. And won the Tony for it. Of course, yes, he, he did. did. And, and, did. Well and his de- first musical. Yeah. Well deserved as yeah. well. Yeah. Scott, you worked on a perfect book, a, a, a book that certainly is considered one of the perfect books, and that she loves. Yeah, me. yeah. No, I, I mean, I still think uh, it's great. By Joe Masteroff. We yes, by Joe. I, I think it's certainly one of the top five. You know, yeah. of just great, great books, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, it's when you get in there, sort of little night music the same way. When you really yeah. delve you into it, you get into it, you go, oh, my God, yeah. these are this yeah. is an unbelievable book. And I think books for musicals get so knocked around and not appreciated until they're really, when you really look at them, you think this, this is unbelievable. And when they're not, I think it seems to me like when we, when we're looking at revivals to really look at, it's the book that's always a little tricky that needs to be. The music it tends to be, the book always you gets know, glorious. <laughs> <The> books always <laughs> gets blamed, you know. And but when you find a great book like She Loves Me, it it it's it's you're just in sort of in awe of it. And cabaret as well. And cabaret. Right. I mean, yeah. there's a slew of them, you know, that yeah. that are just great, great books, you know. And I think it makes. As a direct, for a director, your job much easier. Yeah, part of the problem that they, we encounter is the, the Rogers and the good books for Rogers and Hammerstein musicals are as good as any books, but they come from an era where three hours uh, uh, in a Broadway theater was just was was accepted by everybody. So the challenge with Rogers and Hammerstein right. is cutting them, and um, it's interesting. The, there's a wonderful reprise of the King's song "Puzzlement" mm-hmm. in the King and I for his son. And for her son, mm-hmm. and it's there was a, there's a play, place in Texas um, mm-hmm. lyric stage that does musicals with original orchestrations and all kinds of stuff. Extraordinary, it. extraordinary. Yeah. And so it was full three hours. Right. And when I saw The King and I a couple of years ago, um, I realized, oh, wow, that gives those two characters such a wonderful moment because one of them is going to become the king and one of them is going to threaten to leave with his mother but stay, stay there. But then I said to somebody, it's so, it, it gets cut all the time. And somebody said, well, the problem is you have to cast singing children if you're going to put it in there. So it adds a burden to casting Louis and Jula Longhorn. Whereas if you cut it, yeah, you can just have actors. Yeah. And it's like, so everything is sort of connected. And if you're going to cut The King and I, that's probably, it, it's the one that people have expended. That and Western People Funny, which... I still think was added only because of the contract of the person who played the role. So when people say, are you, is it okay if we don't do the first number in the second act of The King and I? And that's an easy one. Mm-hmm. You brought up a fascinating point, which is cutting 
I mean, our attention spans are so much oh shorter. God. Oh my God. And everybody really wants to be home by 11 yeah. o'clock, please. Or 10 I mean, yeah. Let's admit it, every time we walk in and mm -hmm. it says no intermission, come on, you're halfway home. <laughs> you're halfway home. Yeah, it's like, true. oh my God. Except I, I, find, I find there are modern shows that I see that and, and 62 minutes into it, it, it's time to take a break. Yeah. Because <laughs> well, you know, yeah. there's a tricky period in those 90 minutes. No, no, you're, you're, you're right. Well, you know. you're one right. thing you can, well, what I, you know, for how to succeed, for example, mm -hmm. so that, that is a long first step. That's like an hour 20, hour 24 right, or something. Right there, right there behind you. Do you know what I mean? You know, it's like, it's, so it's, so that, but again, not a lot to cut. And also want to have room for some dance arrangements in there too, which actually is, expands it a bit. So that, that, that what, what, what we tried to do was keep the, the energy going, keep the, keep the, the, the office uh, and the Finch's climb happening constantly in every transition and in everything to hot, to kind of help keep it motoring anyway. So you felt like you're, you're on his coattails and, and let Daniel let you fly, you can fly through with him to the point where you won't watch your watch. But when, when they're long like that, you have got, you can't, you can't have a beat it that isn't so accounted fascinating. for. It's so fascinating. Just being, you know, having just gone through this with Drew, and the, I will say the exact same thing, absolutely the exact same thing, is that the book is lean. We have done some cutting, uh, but it's a long first act, and yeah. it just and it sets up the second act beautifully. Yeah. So it all pays off. But I, I'm, you're absolutely right. It's just those transitions. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it can be five seconds. I said, find a faster way to yeah, do it. Right. It's just drive, 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 drive. Right. So by the end, you're just like, oh, okay. Well, if it's beautifully constructed, if it's a beautifully constructed piece, you pull one piece out, everything sort of collapses. Yeah, potentially. It? To some extent, potentially. potentially. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, even A Little Night Music, which has that brilliant book by Hugh Wheeler, mm -hmm. was running, uh, you know, in this last revival, over three hours, especially once Elaine Stritch came in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the, some of that is, is with directors and pacing and, and driving that, I mm -hmm. think, and I think we're probably similar in that way of, of being aware of that drive and some directors wouldn't well, be, but we're... That's something, I have to say, that's something I learned from you too, working <laughs> with you. No, ser seriously, because, you know, that's, I work with you, it was like my second show and then like maybe my fourth show. And, and so then that, uh, that you not like, no, go. And, and that was something that I, well, one, I learned you needed to do and two, I learned you could do. You could still get the full value of everything you know, so uh -huh. like I would stage a number like in curtains, for example, uh -huh. I would just stage the whole number that kind of went from A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, let's say. And then Scott would watch it and go like, get rid of the C, get rid of the D, <laughs> and try to get to a J and do it like quicker. But, that, but that's how you learn. Then you learn like, okay, and it's so possible and it makes it so much better. Yeah. If, if, you, if you accept that challenge, you know, and it, it has nothing to do, it's not a, it's not a slam. It's not like that's not good enough. It's just no. like it's also. I always find it interesting, and same thing Evan with Drew is when you. I think when a choreographer is in a room and uh, how one directs and choreographs, I have no clue. I mean, that's just like, <laughs> mind-boggling to me. Well, the director but, never comes in and cuts. That's it. true. That's, <laughs> true. that's, that's sure. that, that stupid director. <laughs> but you're also in your room doing your story, and then you bring that story into the larger story, and then it. It, 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 it has to shift, it, it sometimes has to shift again because of, of that, so that's interesting. But yeah, cutting is so fascinating. With What's it. the most drastic cutting you've ever done in a production of yours? Oh, that's mm -hmm. a good question. Uh, wow. And, and what's the most drastic cutting you've allowed in a Rodgers and Hammerstein production, or oh. one that you control? 
<laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's done, and I just happen to go into the theater as I did in on touring production of South Pacific that had a second act that was about 35 minutes long. Um, and it's like, oh, gee, that was a lot of stuff missing. Um, again, th th with smart people, uh, what I've always felt is, um, you know, smart people should have access to all the information. When the Lincoln Center did South Pacific a couple of years ago, I gave them every early draft of a script that I could find in the office. Mm -hmm. um, and Andre Bishop, who's very, very smart producer, read it all, read the Michener, and then the weekend before they went into rehearsal, called me and said, I, I've, I've just taken a look through this all. I am in awe of how this original script was cut. Because the script they went into rehearsal with in 1949 is longer. And everything that's in there, I mean, you would, oh, oh, I can see you saying, oh, oh, no, that's a great piece of information. Oh, I'd love to know more about that. But the way they, the way they actually excise stuff still gives you the story. And frankly, three hours was enough. Uh -huh. um, you know, but again, the, the smart people will then say, as, as Andre did, they wanted to put one line back in from the earlier draft. And, they, and it was a very bold line. It was a, a line that appeared, it appeared as if they chickened out in, in 49 when, when, when she discovers at the end of the first act that he has these kids by interracial marriage and she's from Little Rock and can't deal with it. Which is referring back to something that Rob said about the cultural changes, yeah, the that's demand right. change that's exactly in right. Promises, Promises. Yeah. Rob, can you think of any show that you drastically... Well, it, it, it's funny because I think that the first thing that I always try to do, I'm a firm believer in... Uh, take a little bit from everywhere yeah. as opposed to like cutting a number or cutting a, a big event. N not because I'm in love with the big events, but just like there's some like Promises, Promises, our first preview, I think we were two hours and 54 minutes or something crazy like that. And just by the little trims, just by the little trims and the tightenings and the little trims and the tightenings, and a lot of that comes out of the dance stuff, which is also very good for me to do anyway because it makes it more, more uh, powerful and more pointed and more loaded. It's better, um, I think, is, you know, we were down to uh, two and a half. Mm -hmm. but, so that we took almost 30 minutes off the show by just like cleaning it up and taking that little, we don't need those two eights, you don't need that transitional two eights, can we do that? It's amazing how much, and the playing, mm -hmm. how much time. And also when you, you can think take about it, and, uh, absolutely. I'm going back thinking it's, it's the little things, and uh, I'm just saying because I'm in the middle of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But even taking two lines here, two lines there, not only are you taking the two lines out, but you're also taking the beats that it takes to uh -huh. maybe figure that out or yeah. what that beat is. And, and so it does add up fairly mm -hmm. fast. It's really sort of remarkable yeah. how. Yeah. And also, what's the, thing, what's the thing? What was your thing in curtains that you had this thing about like uh, the jokes, I think? Uh, I'm going to misquote I, that like if they're not if they're not A's or if they're not I think you use A, B and C, but yeah. I've always translated into if they're not a home run uh, or a triple, then they have to go. I, and I, I learned that in television, directing television, you learn that you don't have time. So you can be it can be funny and all three can work. But if one is is a home run and the other two are not, it they fail more, so yeah. you want to just and they, the, dissipate they dissipate the home run the home too. Run because so the triple, so yes. say you have two doubles and a triple yeah. in a row. If you get rid of those two doubles, the triple will become a home run. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Because we did that with yeah. the curtains a lot. You a lot. were very because we would you know we would help try to gauge that yeah. those the triples will try to yeah. you know what I mean and and 
And that's something too I just never realized, you know, just being a dancer in a show and all those kind of things that when you, you don't go to college to learn how to do this, that you realize about those kind of mm -hmm. things and how forensic it all is in a way. Yeah. And, how you, and that's why you have four weeks of preview so you oh, can like figure all of that stuff out and pull that. And, and, and it's not... And how important the audience is. Yeah, but the, I was going to say yeah. this. Wow. Yeah. Because I, I remember in, in, in my early life, especially on the, the Sunshine Boys, Neil Simon, I was the assistant director on the original production. And, you know, Neil Simon would stand in the back of the theater and listen to that audience. And, and as you say, it was like, bump, bump, bump. And, you know, cut this. I mean, the stuff that was cut was as good as what was there, but it wasn't, the shape wasn't right. Yeah. And, you know, what if this is somebody says the audience individually is useless, but together they are absolutely yeah. invaluable. I wanted to yeah. keep on, on cutting and, and talk about Poor Game Best, but since you brought it up, I wanted to bring up uh, Follies. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, I think, the widow of William Goldman, the librettist. James, uh, James Goldman, James. the mm -hmm. librettist. Bobby Goldman mm -hmm. is, is known, and correct me if I'm wrong, is fairly known for not letting anything be changed in revivals. She's tough. She's tough. Bobby's tough. And has that interfered with the success of subsequent productions of Follies? Well, every production of Follies has changed, so she's allowed <laughs> them. Changes yeah. have, been, have happened, and she's allowed it. Mm -hmm. um, it it's, you know, the, you know the, the, the world of widows and, and children. You know, it, 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 some people just, please send me the check and do whatever you want. Some people mm -hmm. are, I don't, you know, cut that line. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's, she's right in there. And it's interesting because there is also the composer-lyricist of Follies who is very much present, Mr. Sondheim. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so one wonders what that conversation is. I do know that, that they got along very well in the most recent uh, production. And uh, the cutting, in terms mm -hmm. of cutting, uh, you mentioned cutting little pieces out here and there. Poor Game Best did a little bit more than that. They cut about an hour, I believe, mm -hmm. out of the show. What was your opinion of that? What did you feel about the latest revival of Poor Game Best and the wholesale changes that occurred in that production? Well, again, I, th I enjoyed the production. I thought it was, I enjoyed it a lot. I love the original as well. I know it pretty well. I, I do, I love it. And I love all of those beats inside it. Uh, I think I've had my own love affair with the original, all of my own. I've never seen it. I've never, this is the first production of Forgive Best I've ever seen. Uh, but, but loving the original score, but also, again, trying to take a piece that feels so of a certain time in a certain place and making it feel a little maybe more streamlined for an audience of today to come to see and not you know, not necessarily for an opera company so I think that that's one of those one of those experiments that are uh, that is worth having you know I, I don't think I don't think anybody meant any disrespect when I it was interesting because when I finally saw the show I was felt like from what I'd read or felt and I was like oh gosh it's like people that go like, well, we can do anything to this old thing because it's, you know, but that wasn't, it didn't have that feeling uh, at all. It didn't at all feel that way to me, uh, that, that, that there was disregard for the material or the original, like whatever, we could just, whatever we want to do at, at all. So I thought it was very respectful. And it's a shame done. that that's sort of what, what you sort of felt with all that yeah. hoopla before, which is, I'm, I, I agree 100%. It's, again, it goes back to, well, you can, always do the original production, you can do the full one, which by the way is not being done, or if it's being done, yeah. it's being done on, in an opera house, it's massively expensive. Yeah. So I looked at it the same way, I thought, I don't understand, I, I, it's, I thought the production was successful mm -hmm. and it certainly introduced it to a lot of uh, new people. And, and respectful. Hopefully, and very respectful. I thought, I thought. And I would love to see a full production of Porgy and Bess any place mm -hmm. 
that's not going to stop me after seeing this. It's yeah. like, if anything, it will make me more interested yeah. because I go, I saw that. I'd love to see the full thing, but I, I was surprised. Ted, can you address, I'm sorry, were you going to say something? No, no. Ted, please. can you address the commercial pressures that may have led the Gershwin's estate to want to have a two and a half hour production that perhaps may get more productions and consequently generate more revenue? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, also, just keep in mind that the original production of Porgy and Bess was at the, now the Neil Simon Theater. I mean, it, it, mm. it is, it, it's an anomaly in that, is it a musical, is it an opera? Mm. It's one of the very few, maybe the only one, that actually, you can make an argument that it is both, both. and has a life in, in both, but certainly in the economics of Broadway today, Broadway is still a very important place for productions of the past, of the classic American musicals to be done. The visibility is still good there, the Tony Awards, there are all kinds of reasons why, if it's good, it's a very good mm -hmm. thing. So I can absolutely understand why the Gershwins thought, you know, let's do Porgy and Bess in a simpler way and see if we can actually get a, you know, a, a Porgy and Bess that can be done um, more often than the Opera House version. Um, we, we just put a showboat in the catalog that was done at Goodspeed Opera House last year because when they said they wanted to do showboat, the entire theater of the Goodspeed could go in the, <laughs> the showboat scene that's a, a play within a play. But the director was very smart, and he told Rob Ruggiero. Rob Ruggiero. And he did a wonderful Ruggiero. job. I saw that production. Yeah. And, and, and again, part of the why we're making it available is because I would like to think that there are people who think about Showboat as something much too big to be done, and here's one that's streamlined, both in time you know, and also in, in personnel, but tells the story. You know uh, that that's to be told. In the Same with parade. You know, I, I did parade in London at the Donmar Warehouse. We did a cut down version. I was in the one at Lincoln Center. Wow. That was the last show that I was in, and I was assistant choreographer, and and that that show was valid in its own right in the spectacle of it, in the epic nature that, of of how it was set. I mean, it was beautiful and it and it was well done. But it's but it's okay to reinvent that as well to make it smaller. The intention was not, when we did it at the Donmar, was not, oh good, we're going to get the lean, mean one so that, and, and believe me, the authors were the ones that were like, when I went to them and said, you know, I, 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 let's do it at the Donmar, I, I, we've been asked, but we have to cut it down. They were the ones that were, we've already written the show, we don't, we don't need that. Right. We don't need to cut it down. It's not that they were, they, they, they weren't trying, they didn't have that in their mind. Oh, great. Let's do the nine <laughs> instruments, 15 people version. Uh -huh. You know, it was just for the place and for the time and for the streamlining and what happened with, the, with that particular show, but because we had s s a smaller, much, much smaller cast, there were double and triple casts. Uh, the actors played many roles, and because of that, if you played one role, you didn't play the other role, and then that role kind of disappeared, and, and the whole thing became somehow a little more concentrated than, and, and not as epic. So it depends on, yet, on what it, you want. I was fortunate enough to see and, it, and, and, and yet it worked beautifully. You know, it's just so, it's, it's a, not to yeah. take any away from yeah. the original, they both, but they both, they both work. worked in their own. They both work in however you want it. Is it being done by other people these days? It is, be, it is being done. Your version of it. Yes, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. The it interesting is. thing about Porgy and Bess in terms of the Gershwin's estate is they did win the Tony. They may, they may have lost most of their investment in Broadway. Yeah. I don't think it, it did very well commercially, but they did win the Tony, and I have a sense that it's probably going out, this yeah. version is going, yeah. will it, be done it's gonna, more. I mean, it's still, there are things about Porgy and Bess, it's an all African American company, and mm -hmm. you need that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that will, that will dictate where and how it can be done. Knowing the piece so well, Rob, did you miss anything? I would say the vocal arrangements. There were a couple of choral moments.
mm -hmm. that I had fallen in love with in my listening, in my own little porky and best of my mind, that I had fallen in love with that I didn't that I missed. You could have snuck a recording in. There. But other but other than that, I didn't I didn't miss anything. It wasn't like I felt I was deprived. I felt like I saw that show that I had always wanted to see. But there were some choral moments that I missed yeah. just by size and I think length. It's yeah. also, it's interesting because we don't talk about it, but most of these revivals, or any of them, w you never have the full orchestra that they had originally. Yeah. So yeah. the sound is always going to be yeah. different. Yeah. You know, you can imagine going to yeah. see shows, you know, with all those instruments, you're never going to see that. <laughs> you're never going to hear that again. And then there's Chicago with the original, <laughs> it was uh, the origin, originally orchestrated for the 15 players that are on the stage <laughs> of the Ambassador Theater. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we mentioned, obviously, a little night music and uh, company shows that you've you've directed. How aware are you of Hal Prince's production when you come to do a revival? Well, first of all, I always say that if you're going to do a revival, no matter what, whether it's a play or, or what, you have to give lots of props to you know prop to the original director. You know, I mean, Hal Prince is a genius, and uh, and there's not one show including Harvey recently, that I don't go back and scour of everything I can find out about the original production because I feel like it's only going to help me. If, if anything, not to do that or to do something else and not to repeat that or to find things that I go, oh, I understand why they're doing that. So I think, I mean, with Hal, it's a little different only because it's Hal Prince. So he, he, such an incredible director. And so when you approach any of his shows that he created, it's a little, I feel it's a little daunting, you know. I don't find that with other shows because that's how Prince, but I still go back, embrace what I can, and respect that, and then try to move on and, and do what I'd like to do. I mean. How is that relevant to, say, Wilfred Leach's original production of Drood? It's a good question because I, again, it, I feel the same way as far as what Wil Wilfred did originally. You, I have to appreciate and embrace and thank uh, and and what I don't know what he uh, well knowing Rupert now I understand what Rupert brought and what Wilford brought uh, but it's also very Drew's a little different because you can't do that except in a music English music hall that's what it sets up to be so it sort of dictates a little bit more of what it is my job was to cast it hopefully in a great way and and bring in new dance and to uh, you know a new look to it you know structurally it stays that but uh but i i i always go back to the original and and, and look and then just hopefully be able to move on and do my own thing rob you you only directed choreograph almost your own stuff now you you choreographed evita mm -hmm. michael grandage obviously yep. directed it mm -hmm. why did you choose to choreograph when somebody else was directing well we we did that in london in 2006 oh, I so I, okay. uh, I worked with michael and guys and dolls in london and then we did evita was the thing we did the next year so uh um and but i mean to to be totally honest i i don't i don't make those rules for myself that oh, seems okay. silly to make those rules. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I love choreographing, and you know, so it was a thrill to get to bring Evita here as well. And and you know, I, I just feel blessed that I get to do all that I get to do. And and I, I love collaborating too. I'm I'm I love collaborating. That's how I learn, and that and it pushes me. So you know, sometimes it's lonely doing both in a way. So it's it's <laughs> like a, a nice welcome. Uh, you know, uh, to go back to a collaboration with somebody. Um, so, uh, but, but 
but we did it in London, and then we and we did it did it here this past season. Did Michael Grandage ask anything about the original Halpern's uh, uh, production um, of you? Well, he. I mean, if he, you know, he does his homework, of course, and he was certainly aware of it completely and, and knew everything there was, you know, to know about it as far as, as what Scott said, the research and the kind of work you do to, to know the what and why. And also, I mean, we have the authors, so we had Tim and Andrew, too, who, were, who uh, also talked a lot about um, uh, why they wrote certain things, what things they wanted, what things how particularly ask them to write, what things that, you know. So that, that was a great source to have as well, to have, uh, you know, Andrew and Tim. And by this time, of course, you had a film, and you could well, what we, in More a, than anything that we had this time, I think that they didn't have the, the first time, was, you know, everyone's awareness of Argentina, of the politics, of the place, of, you know, people holiday there now. Mm -hmm. And I think when the original Evita was, was written and seen, I don't think anybody had been there. <laughs> I mean, it was like it was, a, it was a different time, it was a different place, and it wasn't somewhere that felt uh, um, open to, to, uh, to that kind of thing. And also I think that what they were trying to do at that time was to tell a less of a factual telling, even though there are a lot of facts in it, but more a fantastical, theatrical, mm -hmm. theatrical rendering of this woman's life and you know and Che Guevara is the perfect example of it you know what I mean that idea of, of bringing this other character I don't think they ever met but but they have this you know that was that was the theatrical retelling and beautifully done and great production I actually actually did it in you know in Summerstock that that the How Prince Larry Fuller production it was thrilling to do thrilling to dance you danced in. in it I danced yeah. in it yeah I, I did. I was one of the slouches who danced with, <laughs> with Ava. You Must Love Me was, was put in this production. Is that right, Rob? That's correct. And we put it in in London. So it was done in 2006 in, in London. Uh, and was there much discussion about that? Because what we're talking about, is, and, and this is true of Sound of Music, obviously, when there, when there are films that mm -hmm. are made of these productions and then revivals come back to right. it, uh, that's well, it was a song that discussion. Was, it was a song that was added for the film. That's right. And, and won the Oscar. <coughs> and it did win the Oscar. And it's a great song. And uh, uh, we did want to, we, we wanted to put it into the show because it is such a, ter a terrific song. And the, the question there was where? Mm -hmm. That was the question, where could it possibly work? Because where it plays in the film is kind of where, uh, uh, it's at the end of her life. And, and because there is a beautiful song already written for the musical that happens at the end of her life. And she's on the balcony, and they're filing by, and she sings um, uh, about all of the choices she had, which works beautifully. But it did see, but the place we found for it, it feels like it fits like a glove, really, uh, is after the uh, waltz with Che and Ava, mm -hmm. and when you know Che basically becomes Perone, and she and she the first sign of her illness at the end of waltz for Che and Ava when she talks about. Um, she's praying, my body's falling apart, and then she gets to talk to Perón. So it works beautifully, I think, where it is, and it, and it feels like it's always been there. I can't imagine that it wasn't really. Scott, have you approached uh, a revival of a musical in which you've interpolated other songs? Has that You know, it's up? funny, I was sitting here thinking, I totally forgot what my first show I ever did was Flora the Red Menace, mm. uh, 
which was a revival with a new book and we came up with a new concept and we did take we went back to John and Fred's to Cantor and Epps trunk and we did pull some songs from their trunk and put it in there I, I so odd that I forgot that was the first show I ever did it but we did exactly that in a total different concept and then we did so we did but John and Fred Fred we was alive and we sat around a kitchen table and we sort of mixed and matched and pulled things out did Fred write the book to that uh, was uh, that George Abbott and Fred. And Fred wrote, yeah. wrote for the rest. Yeah. And it was very successful. And Hal Prince was the producer. Was his first shows that. he produced. Yeah. And, and Ted, when it comes to Sound of Music, obviously uh, I must have done something good. And uh, if I'm remembering this, the, the title of the song was correctly. Was there a movie made of the Sound of Music? I'm not sure. No, There are two songs written by Richard Rogers alone uh -huh. from the movie. I have confidence in something good. And people always want to put them in stage productions. And you met them? For the most part. Um, what guides your judgment in that? Uh, um, what we can get away with. <laughs> you know, to, to, see, uh, to see whether stage people will trust the stage version because it works. What's, what I have now come to realize is it works beautifully, um, different than the movie, and there are, it's the same story, so there's enough there for people who know the movie without doing it slavishly like the movie. Mm -hmm. um, right away when, the, when my favorite things is with the mother abbess and Maria and you know, it, before she goes to the Von Trapp house and the audience is like, w w what's, where's the bedroom? What's this doing here? <laughs> mm -hmm. But it, it, it pays off and you get the two songs from, from Max and Elsa which are not in the movie. Do you think they ever, the audience steps out for a moment and goes, oh, movie song, movie song, or is it done? Is well, it something, good, something good actually replaces a song that nobody knows oh. called An Ordinary Couple. And, mm -hmm. and it's a weird little song, Ordinary Couple. So that sort of fits easily. Got it. But I have confidence. The other thing about I have confidence is it's a brilliant movie song because she goes, she comes out of the, you know, of Nunberg Abbey and she wanders around and gets to the Von Trapp. It's a travel song. If you do it on stage, if you start her with, as a nun, she has to get into her clothes. She has to get, you know, <laughs> you just can't do Salzburg on stage the way you can in the movie. So I've seen many attempts yeah. at her changing clothes elegantly on stage, and changing clothes is not an elegant gesture on stage. You started this conversation saying that you were open to ideas. Mm -hmm. What are, do you have any hard and fast rules? Uh, what are your own biases? Because you know the work so well. What are your own biases when it comes to people that come up to you with ideas for a revisal? I would, I'd like to say I don't have biases. Um, it, it, my early years were in the theater. I mean, I, I know what goes on when you actually do a show. Therefore, I think the thing I have to be the most careful of is to understand what their problem is. Um, so that, so that I, if they're asking a question, why are they asking it? What can I listen to? And either guide them and say, you know, I've actually learned from the years I've been here that, that you're, the prob what you're perceiving as a problem may not be a problem. Or say, that's a very interesting thing. Let's try this out. But, uh, you know, there's a little bit of hesitation. It, 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 you know, e each circumstance is different, and you just you do, use your best instincts. If you were directing uh, a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, mm -hmm. what would you ask Ted? What would you want to know from the controlling estates in terms of the changes that you as directors might want to make? Does anything pop to mind? I, I don't know that I would ask up front as much as I would wait till I did like a, my own first pass at it in my head about what to do. Yeah. And, and no matter what, what cause, what factors had to be factored into that first pass, like you're going to do this at the Donmar Warehouse and there are 250 seats and it's a postage stamp, right. or whether or not you have this amazing leading actress who is not a great singer mm -hmm. but is mm -hmm. perfect for the role, or you know, uh, 
the producers would like us to do it, you know, with an ensemble of eight instead of 20. Or, so I would, I would allow those things to be factored in as you did the first pass, and then I'd come to Ted and say, okay, here's the deal. My guess is if you come to the estate having thought through it, yep. and, re, you know, they're going to be open to listen yeah. to it because you've Absolutely. tried to... You know, we've had a little bit of this in our history uh, on some various things, and oh, it's it's brilliant. You, it's totally collaborative. It yeah. doesn't at all feel like you're going. No, but it's not because also if we're not thought of as a resource, I mean, we should. We are a resource, and mm -hmm. and you know the the knowledge that hopefully those of us who are not the writers and not the families have have gleaned through our years of dealing with these. Um, if, if what we have come to learn isn't useful, you're kind of dumb not to, you know, take, yes, you, right. we don't have to agree on everything, yeah. Yeah. but, um, but it's, it's great. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you gentlemen very much for a very stimulating and, and very educating uh, conversation. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, I'm Patrick Pacheco. And thanks for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theater. There is so much more to the American Theatre Wing than just the Tony Awards. The American Theatre Wing's website has a wealth of information. There's about 700 hours of material on the website. <laughs> 700 hours? That's a lot of material. Here's the jam, everybody. It's free. There are videos, there are podcasts that you can download right onto your iPod. You see artists talking about what inspires them and why they got into the business. It's great to be able to hear people like Stephen Sondheim, Patti Lapone, Doug Wright, Scott Ellis, Donna McKechnie. Programs like Springboard NYC and the Theater Intern Group are great opportunities for young people who are trying to get into the business. The Jonathan Larson grants for new composers are great. And it's just another example of how The Wing is doing wonderful work in fostering the talents of young writers and artists. What the American Theatre Wing does with these programs is it immerses you with artists currently working the business. What the Wing provides is inspiration. I'm Jen Damiano. I'm Hunter Bell. I'm Bobby Steggert. I'm Saikon Simbla. If you love theater, go to americantheaterwing.org. It's all there on americantheaterwing.org. Click over and check it out. You might learn something.